we're not throwing the human away. We're just acknowledging that the human is much more embedded in the ecosystem around it. If we decenter the human, then we're saying the non-human is as valid and as important and needs our attention as much as the human. And if we increase the well-being of non-human, we increase the well-being of human by the consequence because we acknowledge the relationality. How can we expand that perception of ancestry and what home means when we travel, when we move through space and make ourselves feel at home wherever we are in the world? Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Ruta Jemchukovaite. Ruta currently lives in Berlin. She's a writer, artist, and researcher working with Mycelium for Regenerative Futures. She was born and grew up in Lithuania and studied and lived in Scotland for six years. She started studying psychology, then learned to facilitate trauma healing and shadow work in Costa Rica. She practiced that for a while in private practice and also started a podcast called Modern Psyche. After moving to Berlin, she dove into work with technology, learned coding, and started running the Humane Tech Berlin Group. Ruta is a designer, an artist, a posthumanist, a thinker, a feeler. This conversation really allows us to open spaces about what it might be to decenter the human, what it might be to take on ethical considerations of the not human. What happens when we work with mycelium and use it for our own extractive purposes in order to generate profit? Or are there ways of working with mycelium that are perhaps more regenerative, that allow for the thriving of life? And these are the questions that Ruta grapples with, and in many ways, the questions that we've been grappling with on the Coconut Thinking Podcast for a while. So I'm really so happy to have had the opportunity to speak with Ruta. This is a conversation about thinking about who we are in terms of our identity and how it might be that we are not entities in ourselves, but rather we become through the relationships, the relationality that entangles us all into one. Or as Bruno Latour would say, we're all but not two. Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.com. Again, that's www.coconut-thinking.com. And I'll leave space for my conversation with Ruta. Well, hi, Ruta. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I met you through Charlotte, so it's particularly uh, interesting to me to hear about your work, to talk about your work, and how you and Charlotte collaborated and some of the ideas that came there. So very much looking forward to this conversation. I'll start off by asking the question that we ask everyone to start out with. We learn more about them sometimes by how they answer than what they answer. So who are you and what story do you want to tell? Hi, Benjamin. Thank you for having me on. Uh, really, really lovely again to meet you and to meet you through Charlotte. So we found a lot of mutual interests and overlapping worlds between us. So my name is Ruta Jemtrugovaite. I am an experienced designer, writer, artist. And my main concern and my main focus is more than human world 
And how can we design experiences that allow us to have transformational experience, uh, especially looking from the point of transforming um, our relationality with the world and especially with more than human world. And the story I am telling and I would like to tell and continue telling as long as it takes is that humans are not at the center of the world and that there is a lot of space to actually decenter the human being and show that the ecology of the world and the history of the world and the mythology of the world spans way across beyond human towards more than human world and that it is possible to change that relationship so the story for me the most important story is changing our relationality with ourselves and the living world from extractive from degenerative towards more regenerative towards perception of kinship and perception of animism and i think that rounds it rounds it up well there's a couple of things that I want to pick up here. The first is this idea of transformation of, of relationality. We're not talking about transforming ourselves, but you're specifically talking about relationality. Now, the question I usually ask right after the first question is, what does already mean to you? I'm going to invite you to kind of go into both of those with what does learning mean to you and also what you mean by transformational relationality. I, I kind of feel like the two are connected and we can jive in, in, in different ways with that. But, but how, how does that connect the transformational relationality? So to me, it, it looks like this. As humans, we were born as complete learning beings, as babies we come into this world, our nervous systems are just ready to learn everything that is in front of us. When we're thinking of even right now, we have an example of AI training and learning. A baby has to see a cat once to know that it is a cat, but we have to show millions of images, you know, to AI to make sure that it knows that it's a cat. So recognizing that as humans and living beings, all living beings are deeply embedded in what is learning. And maybe we could go down to that argument that life is learning life is continuous learning process and life itself learns about it through relationships so the more complexity we have the more kind of we could say we fragment into human non-human animal plant different types of beings we have so much to learn about ourselves from different perspectives of different beings about each other. Um, so the transformation for me happens in relationality the most. Most of our learning about the world happens through relationship with that subject or a person or an animal or a plant or another kind of being or an ecosystem. So I think it's important at the moment, especially to be carving out spaces where we can um, 
create conditions for that transformation to happen because the relationships that we are born into, especially right now or decades before or for these past 500 years is relationality of extraction. And that is being has been normalized um, throughout our Western world and the rest of kind of global system. And I'm wondering how we can carve out spaces where we leave that type of relationality behind and can look at designing a space where we can transform that from degenerative extractable relationship towards a communion with the living world that is reciprocal and that comes from this piece of reverence and perceiving the rest of the living world as sacred. So that's the shift that I'm thinking of. And to me, that is the learning process too. Um, I see learning as always being able to learn through experience the most. So, um, yeah. And because you're a designer, because you create these experiences, usually when we think about these transformational experiences, it's about entering the space, having the experience, and coming out on the other side a different person, kinder, wiser, smarter, knowing something, something. But it, it tends to be very much on the individual you're stressing the relationality, what's in between two beings. How does that come into play? What, what are the, the differences here, subtle and, and probably more explicit? So when we enter, especially into the trans, self-transformation field, the healing field, especially in the Western culture where bombarded with the message that you can heal by yourself you can transform by yourself you don't need anyone else to do that just buy this course and you'll be good and i've i come from that field i've seen this field develop and i can only say that it can only take you so far so if we ex actually want to heal we need to realize or transform kind of similar word, different meaning, but we are acknowledging change that happens from one state towards another. So when we're going into a space of transformation, um, we want to acknowledge that whatever happened before in the state you are in happened through certain kind of relationality, one that you have your personal relationality with everyone else, everything else, and other people's relationship, other beings' relationship towards you. So in that regard, we are looking at whatever you're embedded in, recognizing that you are, as a, as a human being, you are an ecosystem embedded in other ecosystems with relationships and, again, with human, non-human and other conceptual relationships that you have with every other topic within your life, that's also a relationship. So we're looking, if we want to make that bigger shift, we want to look at the system that is around you, that you are embedded in. And we know those examples that people go through a transformation, for example, or healing from being, being an addict, and going through the whole recovery process and the healing process. And then they come back to their home and 
the same patterns reappear again. So it's really dependent on the embeddedness and relationality we're surrounded by. If the transformation happens or if we go back to the same patterns. And maybe we can also pick up on another thread that appeared and, and eventually bring them together. But you mentioned that you want to decenter the human. And, and again, we're talking about design. And so often now we see people who are talking about human-centered design and they're talking about, especially, you know, you mentioned AI saying, oh, let's find our humanity back. Let's let's make sure that we can do things that generative AI can't do. Let's, let's be more human. But you're talking about the opposite of decentering the human in the design. What are some of the interplays here about what it means to decenter the human within design and how is that uh, juxtaposed, different, contrasted with human-centered design? So I also come from the field of human-centered design. And for a long time, I was really obsessed with that idea because we could look at it and, and ask the question, well, what is non-human-centric non design? So we could say the first layer is that the center is around the algorithm, the extractive attention economy, extractive data economy. Uh, that's kind of the first layer of technology that we're usually interacting with. Then there is an activist side, like Center for Humane Technology, that asks, please, at least stop extracting the data from humans or the attention of humans. And let's kind of put an end to this type of technology that is designed to extract your attention and extract your time and use your data against you in a way. So for a long time, I was focusing in my career on that aspect um, because first of all, as humans, we want to take back our attention and our time and our ability to focus to make any rational or heart-centered decisions. Right, and then when we're looking into decentering the human, we're saying that actually, it's not just putting a human from the pedestal, but it's saying the human is connected with the rest of the non-human. We're not throwing the human away. We're just acknowledging that the human is much more embedded in the ecosystem around it. It hosts millions of bacteria, and it's always in interaction with the rest of the living world. And if we decenter the human, then we're saying the non-human is as valid and as important and needs our attention as much as the human. And if we increase the well-being of non-human, we increase the well-being of human by the consequence because we acknowledge their relationality. So... I think that's why we need to start focusing more and more to that towards towards that um, space, recognizing that our all of our ancestors, ninety nine percent of the time of humanity, have been in a very deep relationality with the rest of the living world, and we're basically deeply entrenched in animism. Perhaps animism is the 
post-humanism of the past or is the layer of reality that we can engage with and remember. So that's where I'm coming from. Tell us a bit about animism. What do you mean by that? What 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 is the history of animism? How it comes back from thousands of years? How, how is it relevant today? It's really relevant today because we are learning to see that the rest of the living world is actually alive, has agency, is interacting and interplaying with each other all of the time. So our ancestors through their mythologies, through their lifestyles, through their way of being, through various ways of relating to the living world, we're able to live in that cycle of knowing that everything else around them has a certain kind of soul, you could say, or agency that is not dead matter. It's not something that I take extract from and throw out. There's There wasn't any objectification. For example, I, I come from Lithuania, so I come from the Baltic countries, and especially there, paganism was kind of prominent throughout ages. And Lithuania was actually the last country to be converted from pagan to Christian in Europe. So we really held on to our pagan roots and still now it exists. And in paganism, you could see that animism was the first layer of reality that people were interfacing with. Everything had a God within the wind, the grass, the soil, every tree, you know. So there was reverence and perception of sacredness. And I'm wondering what that would look like in our context today when we reintroduce that understanding of sacredness, perception of sacredness within other living and non-living beings. No, we could we could also talk about even rocks and and geologies and people's relationship to that. But just to stretch the mind that not every single moving being is alive, but also beings that, you know, that are minerals and rocks and and geologies. Um, so our ancestors were also perceiving them as deeply animate. In the regenerative space, which is a word that's increasingly being co-opted by the corporate space, as one could expect, it's just getting a lot of traction. We're hearing a lot more about it in the last six months. It, without trying to define it, we could probably give it a spirit of trying to uh, respond to the world in ways that allow life to thrive. Now, you know, we could pick that or something else to describe, but it's certainly... I think in terms of the patterns of what people mean by regeneration, it is about all life thriving rather than just humans or, or ourselves and, and non-extractive that way. I'm wondering, nevertheless, what that means in terms of the decentered human, in terms of what that means in terms of our of, of how we respond, what we do in order to allow life to thrive. Because we can talk about regenerative economies, but sometimes people talk about circularity of economies and, and, and try not to waste energy. But what might that look like? And of course, this is 
purely imagination, but what are some of the ways that we can continue to respond to the world that, that help life thrive in terms of design? What, what's more concrete in terms of this, this idea, this notion? So if we, just picking back on what we just spoke about now, if we introduce into our design systems the animist lens, my question is, how does everything change on a practical level? How does it change the system when we introduce into our design the perception of that relationality, that whatever I extract right now will come back to me and generations later come crashing down? What does it mean if I perceive this crystal that I'm extracting for this iPhone 15 as a living being, how, how does that perception change in our design? What does it do? How does it dismantle the whole system of designing products, for example, that in the capitalist sense are, you know, at the top of consumer society? That's my question within the regenerative paradigm. Because there are myriads of beautiful initiatives for bioregional regeneration, for creating new types of materials. And I'm kind of a part of that um, larger community of seeing, okay, how can we design with living organisms and create new materiality? For example, more concrete example, I'm currently working with mycelium and microfabrication in a citizen lab, and I'm building a sculpture that talks about the question, how, how can we work with mycelium that we're working right now as a new and upcoming boom in, in material design and still perceiving perceive it as a living being, as a creature with its own agency. How does it shape what we design with it? Because we know that if we grow mycelium for a certain kind of reason, whether it's leather, whether it's packaging, whether it's replacing plastics, in the end, we'll have to kill it in order to make that product. So when I see... And, and this might be a bit controversial in the design scene, but when I see someone designing a packaging for shipping wine bottles instead of that plasticky uh, foam that we usually have, right? Design it with mycelium, I think, okay, this is replacing plastic, but now we're outsourcing this living creature to ship wine bottles. <laughs> To me, that, that again comes back to that same paradigm of, okay, I'm just going to replace these materials from, let's say, extractive to a bit more regenerative, but this is where it ends because we haven't imported <laughs> the lens of relationality to that regenerative, whole, whole regenerative cycle. So my project is asking that, how can we relate how can we change the relationality to 
all this new materiality that we're developing? And is it fair to call then mycelium a material? Is it right then to call pigments that are being made from algae just color pigments? There's, is there a new language that needs to actually develop for us to recognize that relationality, to recognize that we are using these beings for these means? And this is a tremendously complex question in terms of ethics and in terms of the line, in terms of, of where we are. Uh, on, on the most simplistic way, and, and, and I apologize for, for making it so simplistic, but how would that be different from cutting a tree to make a house in terms of using that living thing, being the relationship that we have with a tree? I mean, it's not even a thing because of the relationality, but but how would that differ? There, It, it is. It, it's not different. It is not different the same way that we are creating um, animal factory farms, you know, and I do think that, okay, if, if we continue with animal factory farms, how, how on earth will we come to think, oh, mycelium is also alive and a living creature and a living being if we don't even treat animals who are very much animate um, as living beings worth of reverence, um, and love and care, same with the trees. I know our ancestors were worshiping trees. We're seeing trees as sacred beings. And I've just today saw posts someone made on um, this new initiative in Lithuania to recognize Lithuanian person's relationship to a tree as a sacred um cultural heritage that is actually real and incorporated into policy that to me was really an interesting shift to see that we have a heritage cultural heritage that recognizes relationality like that because in lithuania and I know in many other, you know, European countries and in at least ones that were deeply into, into paganism and animism, oaks were sacred. There were different rituals happening next to these trees and they were, they were kept protected. And then we go back to, to trees that are just being planted as monocrops in forests that burn down um, all throughout Europe and in other countries. And we can see that the absence of that relationship, again, creates what we're seeing, what's happening now. You bring up Lithuania, a uh, nationality, a culture, a people, a history. I want to explore also this idea of identity, because if we're thinking about descending into humanity, we're talking about relationality, it really evokes the question of identity and how we identify ourselves, how we identify others, and whether identity exists within us as individuals, or if there's a relationality there or fluidity there. What are some of your views, your ideas, your thoughts about, about how we work with identity? From the personal example, when I moved away from 
Lithuania to live in UK, to live in Scotland for six years. For most of that time, I was rejecting my Lithuanian identity because of all the cultural heritage that came along with it being oppressed and colonized by the Soviet Union and Germany and back and forth and back and forth throughout centuries. Um, so that comes with a certain cultural trauma, cultural psyche that you want to distance yourself from. But when I moved back to Europe, when I moved to Berlin, I realized that if I am completely denying this part of myself, that certain culture that I was born in, I am leaving a hole in my being. I'm leaving, I'm leaving a hole in my psyche. I'm saying I am, I'm not going to identify with any culture or any, anything that ties me to this place. And at the same time, what I'm doing is I'm renouncing everything good that might've come from there. I am renouncing hundreds of years of certain cultural practices, that same animism, that same pagan roots, the connection with nature. While I'm saying, I don't want to deal with this cultural trauma. So everything has to go out through, through the window. So for me, identity is something that if I take it on, I am responsible for it. My relationship with this identity, for example, just let's take one of culture and the heritage. I'm responsible to know and understand what was happening with this culture throughout ages, what people have done or have not done in the face of adversity and war. And at the same time, I am embracing the good that comes with it. So a lot of times I see that people reject every single thing about their cultural heritage because of seeing, okay, my culture has done so many atrocities to other cultures and there's no way I can reconcile with it. But I find that in doing so, we lose a part of ourselves that is much more ancestral and much more grounded in the past that can be actually good as well. And you mentioned very early on about embeddedness. So Lithuania, part of the Baltic countries, part of Northern Europe, part of Europe, part of whatever that might be. There's also, we could we can move through that nestedness, that embeddedness to, to humanity, then also see how we could be fluid within that. I guess I'm trying to pick up as well in terms of you, you, you hinted at post-humanism and what, what that might mean. How does that work in terms of the decentering the human, this idea of embeddedness of identity? Where might we think about our relationships with the more than human world if we are thinking about the nestedness and the embeddedness of who we are? And, and I'm going to say who we are not as individuals, but who we are in terms of how we're defined by, sorry, how we're uh, how we become to exist through our relationships. How does that work from from posthumanism? And I know Shad said that you you kind of uh, don't always hang your hat on posthumanism, but but I'm gonna still invite you to to touch on these uh, the, the, these ideas. 
with this question, what comes to my mind is how we perceive home. Because when, when we, I've heard someone tell about, you know, a person who is with, comes to a new city and perhaps is traveling to different spaces in the city and is looking for her new home, making new connections, but someone witnessing that person, you know, saw that when she reached like a certain bigger park or forest, it was like, oh, ah, I'm home now. Okay, now I can relax. Now I feel myself in this space. So looking at if we go through spaces and we recognize that wherever I am, I am here because of my shared ancestry with the rest of the living world. If we take it long, 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 long back ago, we share uh, with the trees our color and light receptors, sorry, mostly light receptors within ourselves. Um, we share a song and a voice with the bird. So I'm thinking of how can we expand that perception of ancestry and what home means when we travel, when we move through space and make ourselves feel at home wherever we are in the world, even if it's a faraway land like it is perhaps for you too. And, and when you speak, I, I think of the history that you mentioned. I think of the 13.8 billion years of history that we actually have. And I think of uh, the idea of um, quantum mechanics and how we are entangled within ourselves and how every every matter is, is entangled and, and, and connected. And I think of the history that we have on this earth and how at one point we will all dissipate throughout space and, and create new life and start us. And maybe this idea of, of home is, is really, again, this idea of perception, belonging, and, and moving towards that belonging of the more than human world, because we are every 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 atom in our in ourselves is entangled with every other atom because we come from the same point in before time even. Exactly. And that is really well painted when we look at the geologies of the earth and the min mineralogy. When we say the same metals, you know, that are running for our blood, the same iron was made in a fusion of stars millions and millions and millions of years ago. What does that mean? Of how how does it look like when we start perceiving reality like that? And what does it take for us to be reminded of that? Because the world really allows us to forget really fast that embeddedness within the greater cosmos, within the greater earth world. So how my question is how we can continue to remember and um, resist that forgetfulness that is perhaps designed <laughs> in, 
in our societies to exist. How we can be activists of remembering of this relationality. I love that notion of activists of remembering of this relationality. Uh, and, and before I hit record, we talked about the fact that today uh, we went to a waterfall. And what struck me was the fact that the water came, fell from a very, very high cliff, very, very high. And it was so incredibly active and vibrant and, and to a certain extent violent, but I don't mean violent in a negative way, but certainly there was so much force there. And it fell into the, into the basin and then the water was very flat and placid. And I and I kept thinking, my feet are in this water and every single drop of this water has fallen in that violent way. And now is all the same and irrecognizable, even though when it came down in the waterfall, it almost looked like a, b- a bazillion droplets. I wonder if that is really that connections that the, the, the activism that you mentioned is is just this appreciation of of how we are connected now, but also the past and the future just bleed into one another because of the history that we share and the histories that we are creating both in the past and the future. I mean, this sounds so, so incredibly woo-woo, but it's actually not. I mean, it, it is, is physics. It's, it's, it's the reality, the fundamental underlying reality um, that, that we exist um, from, from physics and, and cutting edge physics. Exactly. And we can see it through, <clears throat> again the 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 time and the we could say minerals that were first placed on earth the question is and maybe to bring it back to what is learning to you you know where did it start that the life started learning or the minerals that became life started learning when we look at our bodies, when we look at our nervous system, they are full of magnesium, potassium, zinc, copper, iron. These are all very much base elements. And perhaps we could see it through this way that, and in a really amazing way in the, in the podcast called Emerald, um, the host talks about Aren't we just mineral beings? Aren't we just stone moving through space? Aren't we just an animate stone learning about itself? And how every single life form came from that space. To me, that's the most fascinating. A completely different shift from the idea that learning is the acquisition of knowledge as if it was a bag full of marbles and we just dip these marbles in a bag that we carry along with us and bring out once in a while, maybe lose a few marbles here and there. But that's a completely different historical and and, 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 and spatial conception. And you also mentioned this idea of, of our beings, our, our, our bodies, the embodiment of learning and you mentioned that earlier on as well, I noted, rather than it just being a cerebral cognitive experience. Exactly. Because learning happens because we are embedded in a reality matrix where we need to understand what is happening around us. When we need to learn to predict what is happening, what is going to happen. 
and how to navigate this whole complexity. But if we are learning without that embeddedness and embodiment, that actually creates the need to learn. Then we look at learning as collecting the marbles. But on the other hand, if learning is embedded within the greater reality and our need of, to learn something very specific around that reality or aspect of it is embedded and embodied, then learning can be seen through a very different lens and through a very fundamental part of, of reality and our existence. And we know that every single being that is alive is always learning, continuously learning. Plants, if you put a plant to another part of the room, it's slowly going to learn where the light is now coming from, where the air, how the air is moving in that part of the room. Um, at the same time, the trees that perhaps are, we could say, an invasive species in one part of town or country, they are throughout ages are learning about that ecosystem and the soil and the environment that is happening around them. And then all other living beings are learning about these trees and insects perhaps are learning how can we start attacking these trees or eating these trees. And then the trees hundred years later learn how to defend themselves from those insects. But the learning process is very long. And we as humans don't really see that process happen far into the future. We're very concerned about our lifetime and our time frame. And we forget that there are very different linear time or non-linear time, linear time um, spaces where other beings are learning too in their capacities, their time frames. And I love how you mentioned about the plants, and it made me think of how so often we talk about learning from, and, and, and oftentimes we even say learning from nature. Really, if the plant moves because the light moves, we're sharing that same environment, that same experience in different ways, but we're still sharing it. And, and we should really think about perhaps talk about learning with, learning with the plants, learning with the trees. We feel the wind. We're learning based on our own experience and our own context, but we're in this connected embedded world, we're learning with what is around us, which is not different than who we are because of the relationality. Yes. And how can we extend that learning with being with living alongside while we are learning? How does it look like on a practical level? I have a friend that used to live in Denmark's countryside in her little house on wheels that her other friend from Sweden designed so she could take it wherever she can. And she was working with especially insects and making fabrics and sculptures from fabrics where insects can live on and dipping them in clay. So we create homes for them in different ways. So there is this designing with, living with, observing, learning from in that whole cycle. 
that we don't take that one insect into the laboratory and examine it in completely isolated space, but we're actually embedding ourselves into who they are, how they live their life cycle. And that in turn changes us. We open ourselves to a certain mutability, to a certain um, transformation, to a certain hybridization of our own identities when we enter into that. Even we could say a vulnerable space of being able to be changed by another living, living being, by another creature that isn't even human. And that openness, to me, is at the heart of that transformation. Being able to be vulnerable to other species and recognizing that vulnerability exists. And in those spaces, we're only then able to be transformed by other non-humans. Ruta, I really enjoyed this conversation and I'll leave it open now. This is a little bit the et cetera section about what's on your horizons, what work do you have, what ideas do you have, what are some of the things that are going to come up for you? So now with uh, Symposis, Experience and Design Lab that me and my partner Niels Davis here have created, we are looking to expand our workshop capacities to be able to take people through more than human regenerative world building workshops to go deeper into organizations and how does it look like from organizational level to embed that perception into their design work for example so we're really looking forward to that and we're working on regenerative storytelling uh, workshop series that we'll be doing as well as seeing how how we can bring people more into a space of really uncovering their creativity that is in service of life and regeneration. And how does it look like when you speak about that waterfall, if we see our creativity, our life force energy as being that waterfall and the river that wants to flow to a certain direction, how can we remove the dams that society or you know, our socialization process has built on us? So we'll be working towards designing workshops that work with that and then myriad other projects alongside building the mycelium sculpture uh, that my project is called Refusal to Heal. So asking questions, what does it mean to heal back or actually what does it mean to refuse to heal back into society that is extractive and degenerative. And what does that refusal mean? And does it mean that the system around us need to change rather than we need to heal back into that extractive paradigm? So these are the questions that I'm living with. And yes, continue writing regenerative transmissions, my newsletter, especially on the topics that we've been talking about and continue exploring how we can create bigger, bigger transformative experiences and allow, allow momentum to come through. And how do people get in touch with you? 
they can find me on LinkedIn uh, through my name. Uh, we also have a website, simpoesis.world. So I'm sure maybe you can leave it at the show notes below. Um, yeah, so they can reach me through that space uh, and get in touch via those channels. Also, regenerative transmissions on Substack. That's also the publication. They want to subscribe and follow my work. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate this conversation with you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.com. Again, that's www.coconut-thinking.com. And also check out our partner, Intrepid Ed, www.intrepidednews.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. Leave us comments, five stars, subscribe, and let us know what you think. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye.